Section 58 of A Popular History of France, Volume 5. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 5, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 46. Louis Fourteenth and Home Administration, Part 3. Seignelay had spent freely, but he left at his death more than four hundred thousand livres a year. Colbert's fortune amounted to ten millions, legitimate proceeds of his high offices and the king's liberalities. He was born of a family of merchants, at Rheims, ennobled in the sixteenth century, but he was fond of connecting it with the Colbert of Scotland. The great minister would often tell his children to reflect, quote, what their birth would have done for them if God had not blessed his labours, and if those labours had not been extreme, end quote. He had married his daughters to the dukes of Beauvilliers and Mortemart. Seignelay had wedded Mademoiselle de Matignon, whose grandmother was an Orléans Longueville. Thus, said Mademoiselle de Montpensier, they have the honour of being as closely related as Monsieur le Prince to the King. Marie de Bourbon was cousin German to the King, my grandfather. That lends a grand air to Monsieur de Seignelay, who had by nature sufficient vanity. Colbert had no need to seek out genealogies, and great alliances were naturally attracted to his power and the favour he was in. He had in himself that title which comes of superior merit, and which nothing can make up for, nothing can equal. He might have said, as Marshal Lannes said to the Marquis of Montesquieu, who was exhibiting a coat taken out of his ancestor's drawers, quote, I am an ancestor myself. Louvois remained henceforth alone, without rival and without check. The work he had undertaken for the reorganization of the army was pretty nearly completed. He had concentrated in his own hands the whole direction of the military service, the burden and the honor of which were both borne by him. He had subjected to the same rules and the same discipline all corps and all grades. The general as well as the colonel obeyed him blindly. M. de Turenne alone had managed to escape from the administrative level. Quote, I see quite clearly, he wrote to Louvois on the ninth of September, 1673, what are the king's wishes, and I will do all I can to conform to them, but you will permit me to tell you that I do not think that it would be to his majesty's service to give precise orders at such a distance to the most incapable man in France. End quote. Turenne had not lost the habit of command. Louvois, who had for a long while been under his orders, bowed to the will of the king who required apparent accord between the marshal and the minister, but he never forgave Turenne for his cool and proud independence. The Prince of Condé more than once turned to advantage this latent antagonism. After the death of Louvois and of Turenne, after the retirement of Condé, when the central power fell into the hands of Chamillard or of Voisin, the pretense of directing war from the king's closet at Versailles produced the most fatal effects. Quote, if M. de Chamillard thinks that I know nothing about war, wrote Villard to Madame de Maintenon, he will oblige me by finding somebody else in the kingdom who is better acquainted with it. Quote, if your majesty, he said again, orders me to shut myself up in Bavaria, and if you want to see your army lost, I will get myself killed at the first opportunity, rather than live to see such a mishap. The king's orders, transmitted through a docile minister, ignorant of war, had a great deal to do with the military disasters of Louis XIV's later years. Meanwhile, order reigned in the army, and supplies were regular. Louvois received the nickname of Great Victualler, or Vivrier. The wounded were tended in hospitals devoted to their use. Quote, when a soldier is once down, he never gets up again, had but lately been the saying. Quote, had I been at my mother's in her own house, I could not have been better treated, wrote M. Daligny on the contrary, when he came out of one of the hospitals created by Louvois. He conceived the grand idea of the Hôtel des Invalides. Quote, 
it were very reasonable says the preamble of the king's edict which founded the establishment that they who have freely exposed their lives and lavished their blood for the defence and maintenance of this monarchy who have so materially contributed to the winning of the battles we have gained over our enemies and who have often reduced them to asking peace of us should enjoy the repose they have secured for our other subjects and should pass the remainder of their days in tranquillity up to his death louvois insisted upon managing the hotel des invalides himself never had the officers of the army been under such strict and minute supervision promotion went by seniority by quote, the order on the list end quote, as the phrase then was without any favor for rank or birth commanders were obliged to attend to their corps quote, sir said louvois one day to m de nogaret your company is in a very bad state quote, sir answered nogaret i was not aware of it quote, you ought to be aware said m de louvois have you inspected it quote, no sir said nogaret quote, you ought to have inspected it, sir. Quote, sir, I will give orders about it. Quote, you ought to have given them. A man ought to make up his mind, sir, either to openly profess himself a courtier or to devote himself to his duty when he is an officer. Education in the schools for cadets, regularity in service, obligation to keep the companies full instead of pocketing a portion of the pay in the name of imaginary soldiers who appeared only on the registers and who were called dummies or passe-volants, the necessity of wearing uniform introduced into the army customs to which French nobility, as undisciplined as they were brave, had hitherto been utter strangers. Artillery and engineering were developed under the influence of Vauban, quote, the first of his own time and one of the first of all times, end quote, in the great art of besieging, fortifying, and defending places. Louvois had singled out Vauban at the sieges of Lille, Tournay, and Douai, which he had directed in chief under the king's own eye. He ordered him to render the places he had just taken impregnable. Quote, this is no child's play, said Vauban on setting about the fortifications of Dunkirk, and I would rather lose my life than hear said of me some day what I hear said of the men who have preceded me. Louvois' admiration was unmixed when he went to examine the works. Quote, the achievements of the Romans, which have earned them so much fame, show nothing comparable to what has been done here, he exclaimed. They formerly levelled mountains in order to make high roads, but here more than four hundred have been swept away. In the place where all those sandbanks were, there is now to be seen nothing but one great meadow. The English and the Dutch often send people hither to see if all they have been told is true. They all go back full of admiration at the success of the work and the greatness of the master who took it in hand. It was this admiration and this dangerous greatness which suggested to the English their demands touching Dunkirk during the negotiations for the Peace of Utrecht. The honesty and moral worth of Vauban equalled his genius. He was as high-minded as he was modest. Evil reports had been spread about concerning the contractors for the fortifications of Lille. Vauban demanded an inquiry. Quote, you are quite right in thinking, my lord, he wrote to Louvois, to whom he was united by a sincere and faithful friendship, that if you do not examine into this affair, you cannot do me justice, and if you do it me not, that would be compelling me to seek means of doing it myself, and of giving up forever fortification and all its concomitants. Examine, then, boldly and severely, away with all tender feeling, for I dare plainly tell you that in a question of strictest honesty and sincere fidelity I fear neither the king, nor you, nor all the human race together. Fortune had me borne the poorest gentleman in France, but in requital she honoured me with an honest heart, so free from all sorts of swindles that it cannot bear even the thought of them without a shudder." It was not until eight years after the death of Louvois in 1699, when Vauban had directed fifty-three sieges, constructed the fortifications of thirty-three places, and repaired those of three hundred towns, that he was made a marshal, an honour that no engineer had yet obtained. Quote, the king fancied he was giving himself the baton, it was said, so often had he had Vauban under his orders in besieging places. End quote. 
the leisure of peace was more propitious to Vauban's fame than to his favour. Generous and sincere as he was, a patriot more far-sighted than his contemporaries, he had the courage to present to the king a memorial advising the recall of the fugitive Huguenot, and the renewal, pure and simple, of the Edict of Nantes. He had just directed the siege of Brissach and the defence of Dunkirk when he published a great economical work entitled La Dîme Royale, the fruit of the reflections of his whole life, fully depicting the misery of the people and the system of imposts he thought adapted to relieve it. The king was offended. He gave the marshal a cold reception and had the work seized. Vauban received his death-blow from this disgrace. The royal edict was dated March 19, 1707. The great engineer died on the 30th. He was not quite seventy-four. The king testified no regret for the loss of so illustrious a servant, with whom he had lived on terms of close intimacy. Vauban had appeared to impugn his supreme authority. This was one of the crimes that Louis XIV never forgave. In 1683, at Colbert's death, Vauban was enjoying the royal favour, which he attributed entirely to Louvois. The latter reigned without any one to contest his influence with the master. It had been found necessary to bury Colbert by night to avoid the insults of the people, who imputed to him the imposts which crushed them. What an unjust and odious mistake of popular opinion, which accused Colbert of the evils which he had fought against, and at the same time suffered under to the last day. All Colbert's offices except the navy fell to Louvois or his creatures. Claude Le Pelletier, a relative of Le Tellier, became controller of France. He entered the council. M. de Blainville, Colbert's second son, was obliged to resign in Louvois's favour the superintendence of buildments, of which the king had previously promised him the reversion. All business passed into the hands of Louvois. Le Tellier had been chancellor since 1677. Peace still reigned. The all-powerful minister occupied himself in building Trianon, bringing the river Ure to Versailles, and establishing unity of religion in France. Quote, the counsel of constraining the Huguenots by violent means to become Catholics was given and carried out by the Marquis of Louvois, says an anonymous letter of the time. Quote, he thought he could manage consciences and control religion by those harsh measures which, in spite of his wisdom, his violent nature suggests to him almost in everything. Louvois was the inventor of the Dragonade. It was his father, Michael Le Tellier, who put the seals to the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, and a few days before he died, full of joy at his last work, he piously sang the canticle of Simeon. Louis the Fourteenth and his ministers believed in good faith that Protestantism was stamped out. Quote, the king, wrote Madame de Maintenon, is very pleased to have put the last touch to the great work of the reunion of the heretics with the church. Father Lachaise, the king's confessor, promised that it would not cost a drop of blood, and M. de Louvois said the same thing. Emigration in mass, the revolt of the Camissards, and the long-continued punishments, were a painful surprise for the courtiers accustomed to bend beneath the will of Louis Fourteenth. They did not understand that, quote, anybody should obstinately remain of a religion which was displeasing to the king, end quote. The Huguenots paid the penalty for their obstinacy. The intelligent and acute biographer of Louvois, M. Camille Rousset, could not defend him from the charge of violence in their case. On the 10th of June, 1686, he wrote to the superintendent of Languedoc, quote, On my representation to the king of the little heed paid by the women of the district, in which you are to the penalties ordained against those who are found at assemblies, his majesty orders that those who are not demoiselles, that is, noble, shall be sentenced by M. de Baville to be whipped and branded with the fleur de lis." He adds on the 22nd of July, quote, The king, having thought proper to have a declaration sent out on the 15th of this month, whereby his majesty orders that all those who are henceforth found at such assemblies shall be punished by death, M. de Baville will take no notice of the decree I sent you relating to the women, as it becomes useless by reason of this declaration. The king's declaration was carried out, as the sentences of the victims prove. 
condemned to the galleys or condemned to death for the crime of assemblies this was the language of the roman emperors seventeen centuries of christianity had not sufficed to make men comprehend the sacred rights of conscience the refined and moderate mind of madame de sevigny did not prevent her from writing to m de bussy on the twenty eighth of october sixteen eighty five quote, you have no doubt seen the edict by which the king revokes that of nantes nothing can be more beautiful in its contents and never did or will any king do anything more memorable the noble libertine and free thinker replied to her quote, i admire the steps taken by the king to reunite the huguenots the war made upon them in former times and the st bartholomew gave vigour to this sect his majesty has sapped it little by little and the edict he has just issued supported by dragoons and bourdaloue has given it the finishing stroke it was the honourable distinction of the french protestants to proclaim during more than two centuries by their courageous resistance the rights and dues which were ignored all around them whilst the reformers were undergoing conversion exile or death war was recommencing in europe with more determination than ever on the part of the protestant nations indignant and disquieted as they were louvois began to forget all about the obstinacy of the religionists and prepared for the siege of philipsburg and the capture of mannheim and koblenz Quote, the king has seen with pleasure he wrote to marshal boufflet that after well burning coblenz and doing all the harm possible to the elector's palace you were to march back to mayence the haughtiness of the king and the violence of the minister went on increasing with the success of their arms they treated the pope's rights almost as lightly as those of the protestants the pamphleteers of the day had reason to write quote, it is clearly seen that the religion of the court of france is a pure matter of interest the king does nothing but what is for that which he calls his glory and grandeur catholics and heretics holy pontiff church and anything you please are sacrificed to his great pride everything must be reduced to powder beneath his feet we in france are on the high road to putting the sacred rights of the holy see on the same footing as the privileges granted to calvinists all ecclesiastical authority is annihilated nobody knows anything of canons popes councils everything is swallowed up in the authority of one man quote, the king willeth it end quote. France had no other law any longer, and William III saved Europe from the same enslavement. The Palatinate was in flames, Louvois was urging on the generals and armies everywhere, sending dispatch after dispatch, orders upon orders, quote, I'm a thousand times more impatient to finish this business than you can be, end quote, was the spirited reply he received from M. de la Hoguette, who commanded in Italy in the environs of Cuneo. Besides the reasons of duty which I have always before my eyes, I beg you to believe that the last letters I received from you were quite strong enough to prevent negligence of anything that must be done to prevent similar ones, and to deserve a little more confidence, but the most willing man can do nothing against roads encumbered with ice and snow. Louvois did not admit this excuse. He wanted soldiers to be able to cross the defiles of mountains in the depths of winter, just as he would have orange trees travel in the month of February. Quote, I received orders to send off to Versailles from La Mayeray the orange trees which the Duke of Mazarin gave the king, writes Superintendent Foucault in his journal. M. Louvois, in spite of the representations I made him, would have them sent by carriage through the snow and ice. They arrived leafless at Versailles, and several are dead. I had sent him word that the king could take towns in winter, but could not make orange trees bear removal from their hothouses. The nature and the consciences of the Protestants were all that withstood Louis the Fourteenth and Louvois. On the 16th of July, 1691, death suddenly removed the minister, fallen in royal favour, detested and dreaded in France, universally hated in Europe, leaving, however, the king, France, and Europe, with the feeling that a great power had fallen, a great deal of merit disappeared. Quote, I doubt not, wrote Louis the Fourteenth to Marshal Boufflet, that as you are very zealous for my service, you will be sorry for the death of a man who served me well. Quote, 
Louvois, said the Marquis of Lafare, should never have been born, or should have lived longer. The public feeling was expressed in an anonymous epitaph. Quote, Here lieth he who to his will bent every one, knew everything Louvois, beloved by no one, still leaves everybody sorrowing. End of section 58.